All right, will you turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're picking up our pace a little bit. Deuteronomy. We'll take up 24 and 25, mostly. So start in Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, oh, sorry, verse 4, 5, I mean, sorry, verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in, the, in, the, in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but no more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. 
And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. And then finally, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as he came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, in the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your law. We're those who have become convinced to our very core that your way of living is the best way, that your principles, that your heart are best. So, Lord, we want to follow your law. We want, we want to study your law, Lord, first so that we can appreciate your gospel. We can see our shortcomings and be driven to Christ, but we also we want to study your law because we want to know your heart. We want to know what you would have us do. We want to know what would please you because you have so pleased us. So, Lord, we pray, please make this law clear to us. Please convict our hearts. Please give us the power of your spirit to follow you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've got something really special tonight, brothers and sisters. Now, I can understand how it might not feel like it on the surface. You come to Deuteronomy 24 and 25 in your regular Bible reading, and you think to yourself, well, this doesn't seem very practical, does it? I mean, I know it's the Word of God, but millstones and cloaks and marrying brothers and what does all this have to do with me? might be what you're wondering. Well, what I want you to know tonight is that these laws have everything to do with you. Actually, what we have here, what I'm going to make the argument, is we have a pretty well-rounded theology of property, a, a theology of stuff. And so what I want to show you tonight is that these laws are they're very practical for your daily life. Uh, we just have to give these laws some time and attention to see how that is. So, here's how we'll use our time for the rest of the night. First, before we do a deep dive into these laws, we'll just talk about structure for a second. Then for our first point, we'll look at nine of these laws, and we'll work out the principles that they're teaching. Then we'll see what these laws reveal about God, about his heart, and we'll talk about what these laws require of us. Those will be our three and a half points. We'll start our, our first half a point. Let's just start by talking about structure. For a second, reading these chapters just a minute ago, it, a lot of my commentators even say it almost seems like we've got a random assortment of laws, just a potpourri ball. You just put your hand in, here's some laws. And, but I, I think there is still some very intentional organization going on here. If you've been tracking with our Deuteronomy series so far, you know that since chapter 6, Ten Commandments was in chapter 5, but since chapter 6, Moses has been walking us through case laws to flesh out the Ten Commandments for us in order so chapters 6 through 11 were about the first commandment, chapter 12 was about the second commandment, and so on. We've been marching right through all the way up to the eighth commandment. So in chapter 4, 
We're still working through the Eighth Commandment, the commandment that deals with not stealing, with property rights. But as you get deeper in chapter 24 and 25, you start to make a slight transition into the Ninth Commandment and into the Tenth Commandment. <clears throat> the thing about these chapters is, even though there's definitely a consistent organization, it's not always obvious where the transitions are. I know I have a really hard time. I spent lots of time this week trying to figure out where these transitions are before I realized, you know, maybe you know, it's not the most important place to spend my time because you kind of wonder, is the law that keeps newlyweds out of the army, is that a seventh commandment law or is that an eighth commandment law? Is it more about promoting marriage or is it more about keeping a family's blessing in their hands? Or the law about pledges, do they have to do more with Eighth Commandment about property? Or do they have to do more with honoring our word? You make a pledge, you keep it. Is the law about weights and measures? Is it more about buying and selling, about trade, Eighth Commandment? Or is it more about honesty and business practices, the Ninth Commandment? Seems to lean more that way. So listen, all I'm trying to say here is we're still tracking with the Ten Commandments. I'm just not always sure where we draw the lines. And that's okay, because my commentators don't, and... Uh, but the Lord does. And that's enough for me. That's all I want to say about structure, just to let you know kind of where we're at, how this all fits together. Uh, so now for our first real point, way more important than just structural matters. Let's look at nine of these laws and tease out the main principles that they're trying to teach us. So as we make this start, I, I just want to say a couple things. I want to say first, I'm going to take them out of order uh, because I think it will just help us organize them in our heads. And second, we'll skip a bunch of these laws tonight, but don't worry, we'll, we'll pick them up next time. So with that being said, so you're not totally confused, let's look at our first law. law the first law we'll look at is the first one we read, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. It says this, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he is taking. I'll read this law, I think, well, that's a pretty neat law, isn't it? You think about how wise this law is. It lets a new couple enjoy their marriage. It makes for stronger marriages, a stronger foundation. It makes for more kids in Israel. The law was a good one for couples, for families, for society. It's just a really good foundational law for all of Israel. But, drilling down a little deeper, this law teaches an important principle. It teaches the principle that it's good for people to be able to have time to enjoy God's gifts. It's actually easier to see in the Hebrew because the reason given for this law, it literally reads, not like the ESV says. The ESV say, says, uh, he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife. It doesn't say that in Hebrew. It actually says, but you shall gladden or make glad his wife whom he has taken. I'm not sure why the ESV doesn't interpret it this way. Other translations do, but... This law exists for the gladness and the joy of the wife. It exists so newlyweds might be enabled to enjoy the blessing they've just been given, not have the husband just ripped away, go to war. So what's the takeaway principle for us? It's that God would have us enjoy good gifts that he gives. Second law, we're going to chapter 25, verse 4 says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So you get the picture here. The picture is you've got an ox. It's dragging a, a threshing sledge over grain to separate the, the husk from the grain. 
And the law is saying that the ox should just be allowed to eat some of the grain while it's doing this. You shouldn't put a muzzle, something to block it from eating over its face. Bigger principle being the worker should be allowed to enjoy some of the fruit of its labors. So on the one hand, this law is definitely saying something about treating animals well. It has something in there about that. But on a deeper level, it's telling us we should expect to earn and enjoy the fruits of our labors. In case you're thinking, oh, Pastor Rosser's just making up stuff here, I want you to see this is exactly how the New Testament interprets this. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this law to make the case that churches, it's good for churches to pay those that minister to them. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 9 and 11, Paul writes, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And so what's the takeaway from law number two? It's, it's that we should all expect to enjoy a return on our labor. First law is we should enjoy good gifts. Second law, we should enjoy a return for our labor. See how I'm organizing this in my own head. Third law. Deuteronomy 25, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So this law is aimed at the shadiness of merchants. In Moses' day, sure, but I'm sure they find their way to do it today, too. So you see, back then, if you were a really crafty merchant, you'd have two different sets of weights. You'd have a heavy set of weights that you'd use when you're buying things. You could have more bags of grain or more stuff when you buy it. And you'd use a lighter set of weights for selling so you could keep more merchandise for yourself. You're selling less the person. So the law is clearly calling for honesty in our business dealings. Said another way, takeaway number three is we should only come by things that we earn honestly. We should enjoy good gifts, we should expect a return on our labor, and we should get the things that we get honestly. Which brings us to law number four, Deuteronomy 25.5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And then there are some rules for what the lady should do if her brother-in-law won't do this. And this law is interesting because even though it might not look like it, it has a lot to do with property. This law is seeking to solve a very real problem that came up in Israel If you remember back in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, he promised, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God's promise is that sons would have a perpetual inheritance that their claim on the promised land would carry on through their children and their children's children. And 
Here's the problem. How can this happen if a man dies before he produces a male heir? It seems to sort of shortchange the promise. He would lose his perpetual stake, not to mention his wife would be destitute. She has no one to care for her. And so this law commands brothers, marry your brother's widows to help keep their name going, to keep their stake in the promise. So what's the takeaway here? It's that even though we know in a certain sense you can't take anything with you when you die, there's still this little hint here that all God's people lay claim on a more enduring inheritance. There's a property that we own forever in the promise. Just a hint there. And so there's our fourth law. Fifth law, Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Then the same goes for olive trees, and the same goes for grapes, and it's, he's saying, did everything, all your crops. So at this point, these laws are starting to turn from just how to, this is my organization scheme in my own head, we're turning from just how to receive things and how to enjoy things to how to use them properly how to put them to good use, particularly how to use them to take care of the poor and needy. Lots of laws about that. This law is pretty simple because it's just saying, hey, when you harvest your crops, don't try to get every last sheaf, don't try to get every last olive, don't try to get every last grape, leave some behind for the poor and the needy. The beauty of this law, there's a lot of beauty to this law, not only does it provide for the poor, that's beautiful, not only does it enable the poor to have a share in the blessings of God. Now, they have their own share in the promised land, sort of. At the same time, it requires the poor to lift a finger to help themselves at the same time. It's a pretty ingenious law. It's very ennobling for the poor. And again, what's the takeaway here? It's that it's just this. It's just that those who have an abundance should be willing to set aside some to share. It's pretty simple. Brings us to Law 6, Deuteronomy 24, 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So this law is pretty simple. It's just saying pay day laborers. It's saying if you have someone working for you and they work hand to mouth, if you have someone working for you who, who lives off what they make each day, then you better make sure you pay them at the end of the day. You have to do this because it's necessary for their survival. So the takeaway for this law is that we're to honor our contracts, for sure, pay promptly for services rendered, right, give what's due. Give what's due when it's due. That's the sixth law. I'll take up Law 7 and 8 together. They both have to do with collateral. We call it collateral today. Law 7, Deuteronomy 24.10 says, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. Law 8, Deuteronomy 24.6, No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. So these two laws have to do with pledges, or what we call collateral. According to God's law, God's people are not allowed to charge interest on a loan amongst their own people, but they could ask for a pledge. 
They could ask to hold on to something from a borrower to guarantee their, their payments for what they've borrowed. So Law 7 says you're not allowed to just barge into the borrower's house and take the collateral, just choose what you want as collateral. Uh, imagine if the bank could do that today. If They could say, well, you have a mortgage, so we're going to rifle through your house, and we're going to pick what we want as collateral. That would be a pretty humiliating thing, wouldn't it? It would be horrible. And then Law 8 says that you can't take something as collateral that a person needs to survive. It'd be like the bank going into your home and taking your refrigerator and taking your faucets and, and, any, and your copper pipes, right? You can't take their cloak overnight. They need it to stay warm. You can't take their millstone because that's what they use to make food. They're their little hand grinders this is talking about. And so here's the enduring principle from Law 7 and 8. It's certainly that people are more important than property, and it's that when we're rich, when we have means, we can't use it as leverage over another person's life or as leverage over their dignity. And that leads us to our last law, law number nine, Deuteronomy 24, verse seven. It says, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So, so far we've been commanded to share, to pay promptly, not to lord our abundance over other people, not to oppress. Now we're coming to the most serious of these laws. This is God's law against kidnapping. This is God's law against human trafficking. It's his law against the kind of slavery, frankly, that we're actually most familiar with in our own history. This law envisions a man stealing another Israelite and then either oppressing him into forced labor or selling him, more likely, selling him to another nation for forced labor. I want you to see God as a zero-tolerance policy for this kind of thing. You have all your friends, they'll say, well, you know, the Bible supports slavery. This is pretty clear that it doesn't, I think. This assault on the image of God and man was punishable by death. Uh, removing a man from his covenant, from his home, from his privilege, God says that deserves execution. Hard stop, period at the end of the sentence. That's the punishment. So the takeaway here is that man himself is not to be sold. That kidnapping and trafficking are abominations. So there you have it. You take a step back from all these laws together. I'm trying to connect the, the dots for you a little bit. You, you see all these laws together. You see, wow, actually, we've got a pretty robust theology of stuff. Gifts are to be enjoyed. You deserve the fruits of your labor. You ought only gain those things honestly, and the things that you gain here are a hint of an inheritance that you have waiting for you in eternity. There are some things you can keep forever in Christ. But then when you do get a lot of things, you should be willing to set aside some to share. When you owe something to someone, you should pay them promptly. When the poor uh, need your means, you should never oppress them because you have more than them. You should never lord it over them when you have more than them. And a human being itself should never be sold. Taken one by one, there's a lot to apply there. They, they kind of just apply themselves, don't they? This is just do this. Do these principles. But you ever feel guilty for enjoying a blessing? Well, God's law has something to say about that. Well, they're allowed to stay home for the first year. Enjoy. Enjoy the good thing God's given you. Uh, 
you going back and forth in your mind, well, should I pay my landscaper now or later? Should I? He says, pay him now. Is there wiggle room in your budget for sharing? Are you living, squeezing every little ounce for every little nicety that you can have for yourself? He says, don't do that. Leave some sheaves and so on and so forth. God's law is so, you boil these down and you see them in our context and you see these are so imminently practical, so good, but we can do even better. We can enlarge our hearts even more. So let's look at point number two. Let's look at what these laws reveal to us about our God. So this will be a shorter point uh, because we had to do a lot of studying to understand those laws, but it's no less important. These laws aren't just about how God wants us to get stuff and use stuff, although they are about that. But these laws also, like all of God's laws, they give us a peek at his heart, which is what I love to do as we go through this book. Here in these laws, you see God's kindness. He set up a whole society where he said, my people should be given the liberty to enjoy the good things I've given them. I want my society to be a society where men aren't ripped away from their families right after the honeymoon. You see his kindness. In these laws, you see his fairness. He set up a whole system, an economic system, where if you reap something, you sow something. If you work hard for something, you should enjoy something. That's how his society is set up. Here in these laws, you see his truthfulness. In this whole law of the weights and measures, he says all who act dishonestly are an abomination to him. Unlike other places in the world, he says, in Israel, in my people, there would be one ephah. That's one measure, right? He says, a full and just measure. Full is the word shalom, and just is the word zadek. It means, shalom means full, complete, and zadek means righteous. A full and righteous measure. And in these laws, we see God's mercy. You see, he would have his people share. He would have him do so in a way that upholds human dignity so that these people can be ennobled and they can still work and they can collect. And these laws show his holiness. Not only is he completely intolerant of human trafficking, but in the Hebrew, he literally says, they shall burn that evil out of their midst. Burn human trafficking from off the map. And I skipped one. In these laws, you see God's compassion. He cares about the underprivileged. He cares about the sojourner. That's the foreigner. He cares about the fatherless. That's the orphan. He cares about the widow. This is the God that these laws reveal to us. A God who's kind and fair, truthful and compassionate, merciful and holy. God's law reveals a beautiful God. Now for a long conclusion. Now, I think to conclude, I think we just have to ask the question, well, okay, so what do we do with all this? And I think the answer really depends on who you are. What I mean by that is, if you're not a Christian yet, you should look at these property laws and you should kind of measure yourself against them. Because if you're not a Christian, well, God is good with you only if you've kept all of these laws perfectly. That's how God's law works. And so you have to ask yourself, Has everything I've ever earned come honestly, perfectly? Do I always set aside a large chunk of my income for the poor? Do I always honor all of my contracts right away? Do I always pay my debts promptly? Do I always put people over my property? 
thing is, if you haven't kept these laws perfectly, if you haven't kept God's law perfectly, and if you're not in Christ, then you have good reason to be afraid. Because the truth that lies behind all these laws that you see keeps coming through, and God's reasons for these laws is God's always watching. God always sees. Chapter 24, verse 15 makes it clear. When he hears from someone, when they're crying out because you haven't paid your debts, he hears. He knows. It says also, whenever you take advantage of someone, it says you're guilty of sin. He says you're guilty, guilty, guilty. Chapter 25, verse 16 says, if you've ever gained something dishonestly, he says you're an abomination to him. And we could go on. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, these laws are here to show you that you would stand condemned by God just on the grounds of how you manage your property. Now imagine all the other commandments. And they show you you need to run to Jesus for forgiveness. That that's the only way any man can be right with God. That's what his law teaches you if you're not a Christian yet. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, though, then these laws have a different application for you because you've already come to Christ. You've been forgiven. Now, now that you're forgiven, these laws, they're not a, re a list of reasons why he would condemn you anymore. They're not that at all. Now, instead, it's, it's a list of things you can do to please him, things you can do to thank him for having already saved you. They're a guide for how you can align your heart. You say, I want my heart to be like Christ. This is how you can align your heart to be more like Christ, these laws. So, so yeah, he would have you follow these principles. He would have you study these principles and do these things. He, he would have you enjoy his gifts. He would have you make an honest living. He would have you honor contracts. He would have you share with the poor. He would have you safeguard their dignity. And, and the best part of all this, I think the best part of the whole night, is the reason that he gives us for why we should do these things why we should want to do these things. It's a repeated refrain. You see it in 2418. It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. Or again in 2422, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command you to do this. In Moses' day, God's people were told to be gracious with their property because God had been so gracious with them. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them everything. He plundered the Egyptians for them. So he's saying, well, how could you not do this for people? I gave you everything. How can you not give to others? Now we just have to argue from the lesser to the greater. Because brothers and sisters, if, if God told the saints of the Old Testament to be gracious because of his graciousness to them, then we have infinitely more reason to be gracious with what he's given us. We weren't just rescued from brick-making and an evil pharaoh, from whips. Jesus rescued us from slavery to sin and to Satan and to the world. His blood ransomed us from the eternal curse of the law. And we weren't just given Egyptian gold or a small plot of land in the Middle East, like we saw at the Leveret Law, like the, the law of the brother-in-law. We've been given an eternal inheritance a place in the new heavens and the new earth, a place at Christ's side forevermore. We just read it, Revelation 22, and they shall see his face. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can be honest with our property, why we can be gracious with our property. This is why the book of Hebrews says, 
that we can even joyfully accept the plundering of our property because we know that we ourselves have a better possession and an abiding one in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our minds could understand all this, even more so that this would all trickle into our hearts, O Lord. I only wish I could preach this as it it should be preached, O Lord, that we could drum up this kind of gratefulness, Lord, you've given us so much. May we be those who give so much and appreciate so much, Lord, may this touch our hearts. Help us to be people of your law, people so covered by grace that we can't wait to do your law to follow you, O Lord. So please shape us by this word. Please grow us thereby. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.